Welcome, Anatomy fans. Today on Anatomy of Movie, we dissect uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. So look forward to that and stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Kubo and the Two Strings, the new um, stop-motion movie. I'm excited. I love stop motion. I thought this was a fantastic movie and we're going to dissect it. And yes, we will talk about the controversy. Uh, there's plenty of that, but we'll also talk about the, the making of, which is quite fascinating, as we listen to Regina Spector mm-hmm. and the theme song. Very soothing. Indeed. I like it. We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And I'm Phil Svitek. Today it's uh, Kubo and the two co-hosts. Yes. Here on Anatomy of a Movie. Uh, anyway, a couple of things. Number one, if you want to follow along with us, you can download the rundown. It's in the description. You just download that link, and there's all of our notes, um, as well as pictures that we'll use when we talk about the animation stuff. Uh, secondly, we assume that you've seen the movie, so it's very spoiler-filled. Uh, if you've not seen the movie uh, and don't mind, then listen up. Or, if you do mind, go see the movie first, then come check us out. Um, but as always, let's start with quick thoughts with you, Marissa. You know what? I was actually excited to see this film. I'm not the biggest fan of stop motion, but I remember seeing the trailer for this film in the summer of 2015. And I was just, I went throughout the whole year wondering when the heck this movie came out. And then I realized it's coming out now, like a full year later. So I've been waiting for this movie for a while. And I went into it, you know, very thoroughly surprised. And I thought the animation was you know, beautiful, visually stunning, and whatnot. The storyline was a little all over the place for me, but we'll get into it. But overall, I did enjoy this film. I I didn't know much about this movie going into it. In fact, I barely, I, I almost missed it because, to me, I didn't see a lot of promotion for it. Um, and then people started getting excited for Kubo, and I was like, what, what the hell is this crap? Um, and then... Then it started getting on my radar, and I went to see it, and I was very pleasantly surprised. I thought it was really good. I am a huge fan of stop motion. I like all those various movies. Um, you know, Coraline is is a is a movie that I enjoy a lot. Um, number one because it's it's based off of Neil Gaiman, but I think it's also just really well done. Uh, Terry Hatcher does great in that. Um, but in terms of Kubo, I thought I thought it was very sweet. It. it out of all the movies this year, it had something, it had heart. And, um, you know, so far, to me, only the animation movies really capturing this well. Like, Zootopia had a lot of great heart mm-hmm. um, and whatnot. This is another, you know. And so it, it, there's a lot of flaws that I see in this movie. However, they were all easily forgivable just based on the, the message that it had. Um, and it did something that no other movie this year for me has been able to do. Interesting, and, like what? Uh, just be, just be good, you know? Okay. I mean, also, okay, so last week we talked about Pete's Dragon as well, and that had heart as well, and, you know, that had a couple of moments that, you know, you're like, uh, but they were forgivable. Um, now that one was, to me, a little bit more predictable in terms of its narrative. This, yes, it's a quest, um, so you can kind of predict where it's going, um, for the most part, but it's still it's it's different than anything that I've overall really seen um, because it's got that magic and, and again Pete Dragon had that a little bit too. But magical realism is more uh, prevalent in this one, I would say. 
Um, and I enjoyed that aspect. I like, I like, not only do I like stop motion animation, but I also like magic realism. Uh, and, and I like the simplicity of, of certain stories. And this to me had those elements and, um, and I enjoyed it overall. See, I didn't think the story was that simple, but, um, I did feel like you, you mentioned Pete's Dragon, you know, Disney's really good. I felt like this film even though we clearly know it's not disney it had a lot of disney elements to it you know, like, like themes, dead parents. like dead parents it started off sad and then eventually a kid is trying to find himself on a quest and whatnot and so those motifs like kind of carried throughout this film which i enjoyed because i liked the main kid that we're following i liked his two companions that were helping him along the way so i really enjoyed the characters and following this journey um storyline i think had some issues for may probably kids young under twenty. Uh, under. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 12 might have a hard time following this film, but adults can definitely enjoy it. Um, well, it's pretty PG for thematic elements, uh, scary images, action, and peril. Um, it, you know, I mean, that, that's also the interesting part, too, that I did enjoy was that this was very action-based. And uh, to do st- stop-motion action... Takes a lot. Forever. I was like, how many years did, you know, did, uh, how many years did they take off of these animators' lives, you know? Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, but they pulled it off quite well. So I, I give them props, uh, you know? So, so that's what I enjoyed. Um, you know, the, so in terms of development, it's uh, Leica Entertainment that made this. And I mentioned Coraline. They, they were also responsible for Coraline. Paranorman, and most recently Box Trolls. Which uh, we have covered here on Anatomy, yes. We have, we have, so you can definitely check that out. Um, you know, and, and and they wanted to do something a little bit different. They wanted to sort of uh, go into, you know, Asian culture, Japanese culture specifically. And uh, um, I can never say his name. Can you say his name? Haya Miyazaki? Yeah, Haya Miyazaki and Akira Kurosawa. Um those influences uh maya i love his movies whether it's spirited away or all Great film. uh you know uh, the, the, there's just so Ponyo. many so many movies that he's done over the years and um and so i i did enjoy that aspect of it um and i felt that it had that um mm-hmm. you know but that's what they were ultimately trying to pay homage to yeah, and those usually the, those films you know Miyazaki um, usually centers around one person, one child, trying to find themselves, and I definitely felt uh, that influence in that film for Kubo. Absolutely, um, and the writers, you know, these, these guys have kind of been in this family: uh, Mark Hames and Chris Butler. Um, Butler did Corpse Bride, Coraline, Box Trolls, um, and the Tigger movie, so he's <laughs> he's well versed in the uh, the kid side of it. Um, Hames, however, different. But he's done a lot of action with the Transformer movies and whatnot, so I, I think it was a good blend of animation and action. And we definitely had that in this film. Absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously we'll spend a, 
uh, a decent amount of time talking about the the actual process. But before we get to that, let's talk about let's discuss story. Um, wh- why did you feel? Because you and I seem to differ that uh, the the storyline and the plot was a little bit not convoluted but complex. But- I personally had a hard time getting into which character was which. When we're seeing, when you're watching a television show or a movie and whatnot, and we're into being introduced to characters for the first time, they usually say their names. And we didn't really get that from any of these characters. We were like, oh, you're this person. And I mean, we still didn't really learn the lady's name in the street that was always talking to Kubo every single day. I think they had a hard time introducing each character properly. We know what they did, but how were they related to Kubo? Were they friend? Were they family? I don't even recall the mother's actual name other than the fact that she was a mother. And so every time we were introduced to a new character, I was waiting for their names and we didn't get that. On top of trying to figure out what that character was supposed to be doing and how they added to Kubo's story. So I think the introduction of characters was hard for me to get into, let alone figure out the whole story. Um, okay, interesting that you say that because I can never really remember people's names anyway. Hmm. Um, so I'm better off without it. See, because I'm I big that- on remembering people's names, though. See, I got their function. I knew I knew the old lady, what her purpose was. She was a fan of Kubo. Um, I, I knew... I didn't need to know the mother's name. I just knew she was his mom. And that was good enough. Uh, I mean, the only name that I can honestly remember is Kubo and the Moon King. Moon King? Sure. And that's, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes... I enjoyed that simplicity of it for me because I, don't, I didn't need to be bogged down by, you know, knowing a person's name. I could just focus on, okay, what, what is their purpose? And in some ways, uh, you know, if you kind of, it makes it a little bit more universal because, okay, your mom's name is different than my mom's name, but we can both, you call your mom, mom, and I call my mom, mom. So that's, it makes it a little bit more universal in that aspect. At least it's not Martha. Um, But, I, I mean, I understand that, but when we're trying to figure out who, during this, Kubo's first storytelling aspect and we realize he has magic and all that and he's telling all the villagers um, we hear that story of Hanzo but then we immediately hear a different story following up to that of his actual father I was like are they the same people or are they completely different characters with the same name so again there therein lies my confusion I'm like okay who's who in this film well a couple of things on that number one um, I I thought they played into it well because much like the mother, you know, she had trouble remembering what was real and what wasn't. And that hence then translated to Kubo. So so that feeling of, wait, what's kind of going on, I, I think was purposeful because much like him, he didn't know, okay, wait, is this story? Is this made up? Is this really my father? What's going on? I can't tell anymore. And like you, yeah, you couldn't tell either. And that's what you were supposed to feel. Yeah, maybe I didn't like it. Neither did Kubo! For a kid's film, it should be very clear-cut of who's who, who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, who's the one we should be rooting for. I Well, Fortunately, I don't think, they, I don't think there was any question of that we were rooting <laughs> against the Moon King. Hanzo. Nothing against Hanzo, obviously. But uh, I don't know. I just wanted to a clear understanding of who was who, 
right from the get-go. Because throughout the whole film, we're learning this person also changed into this person. I was like, oh, they're the same people too. Shoot. And then you, you, there's like double identities going on for the same person. And then I was that even caused more confusion. You know what, Marissa? I don't think you heeded Kubo's warning. If you must blink, blink now. I didn't blink. Because I was trying blink, to listen. It may mean death to our main hero. Mm-hmm. You blinked, didn't you? I did not blink. I was trying to listen. You blinked. Mm-mm. You blinked. Mm-mm. Shame the devil speak the truth. You blinked. <laughs> no. um, I don't know. I mean, look, look, I, I, for those of you watching, listening, let us know. What Did you guys feel that it was in any way, shape, uh, you know, um, tough to read? I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, that's part, part of a quest to me is figuring out things and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we, we've. I thought we progressed in a natural way. I mean, because here's the thing. It would have been so terrible to find out, okay, here's kind of how everything is. Um, it would Number one, I don't know how you would do it without just literally having lame exposition. Um, and in this way, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery to figure things out as we go, you know, and that's – we're on the same journey as Kubo. We're right there with him. Uh, it seems like perhaps you like a little bit more dramatic irony. Maybe, like we just yeah. Didn't get... I like dramatic irony. Well, they didn't have it for you. Um, what do you think? Of, once once we kind of got into it, I mean, what did you think of the just the quest in general? Coraline had the same sort of premise of like, okay, go out and get these sort of three things, do these three things. This was very much like, okay, it was laid out. We need the armor, we need the helmet, and we need the sword. Oh, so I, I liked gotta... it. I liked it. It was a clear scavenger hunt in a way, and it was very easy to put together that you need these three pieces to take out the big bad. Um, that I understood very well. I liked it because it also just set up, like, who knows what kind of complications or obstacles they have to face, whatever piece of armor that they're getting. So I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the, the play on the names. Um, obviously, each item has, uh, and at this point, I forget what they are because of, uh, unfortunately, Hanso. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the Sword Unfindable. Which obviously yes. is not its name, but sword unbreakable. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I enjoyed sort of the, the play on words on all of those. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was definitely fun, especially um, them trying to just figure out the location, let alone the pieces. Um, but I, I, it was, in a, I think there was a nice balance of humor for every obstacle that they had to face. Yeah. Um, I agree with you there. The, the, the thing that the only thing that I'll, I woke up to, if it confused me or it just took me in a different direction than I expected, was at the beginning because he's doing the story. Um, I thought we would see those same villains, mm-hmm. you know, like especially like the fire breathing chicken and all that. Right. I thought so too because uh, we saw like a shark and we saw X, Y, and Z, and I was like, okay. If he's trying to find these armors, we're probably going to encounter a shark. We're probably going to encounter... And not, that wasn't the case. Because I also liked that. I thought the same thing. When they were going through the story really fast at the beginning, I was like, okay, they purposely skipped over things. So it's for the audience to be not expecting these villains during yeah. the actual quest. Yeah, that and also, you know, I thought, I thought it was going to be a juxtaposition because, uh, you know, they had the overall layer of it where, okay... You know, he's told this story multiple times, but now he's actually living the story. Um, but living the story is different than telling it. And I thought, okay, 
not only is he doing the same actions, if he has to fight the same villains, then he could realize, oh, in my story, Hanzo fought the villain this way. Oh, wait, that doesn't actually work. I have mm-hmm. to come up with something different. Um, and uh, obviously they chose not to go 100% that route. Um, although, I don't know. They could have. I don't know if it would have made it better or worse. Um, I don't know. It I don't just know. took me down a weird path, which... I didn't mind, but... Yeah, I'm also thinking maybe the practicality of actually filming production of it. I mean, they can afford the small little minis to have miniature sculptures to do the storytelling from Kubo. But if you actually put that in bigger form and actually animate that for a full-length sequence, I don't know if that would have hindered their production. They built a two-story skeleton. Yes, they did. I think they could have built a chicken as well if they really wanted to. But would the chicken add legitimacy to this film? Would it make it? Would the chicken add anything other than being funny? Um, I, I don't know. It just seemed uh, the woman put a lot of emphasis on you got to add the uh, fire breathing chicken. So it, it 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 was just it, it felt like a foreshadow of things to come that just didn't quite come. Yeah. So, um, but that's okay. Um, speaking of that, okay, so we, we, we've collected these items, um, and I don't want to, you know, we'll kind of skip around back into it, but, um, the, the downside to me that I felt was that the items eventually felt like they lost their meaning, their purpose, their, their weight, because uh, the two strings, which he's had all along, to me, ended up being the weapon he's needed all along. Yeah. And it was just this journey to perhaps get him to realize that. I thought so, too, because I think at the that big end sequence, I don't even think he was wearing the suit anymore, the armor. I'm like, what was the point of that? <laughs> um, but I, if it helped carry the audience through the whole film, I think it was good. But, yeah, the whole realization it was something else kind of was... I don't know, anticlimactic, in a way. Yeah, I, I, I thought that part of it could have worked a little bit better of, you know, um, him realizing, okay, like, while, you know, that, that he sort of had the power within himself all along, um, and, and the real power is his magic, I guess. Yeah. It's like, Dorothy, you had your way home with the ruby slippers, you know? The entire time. Just exactly. It, it was along those lines. Yeah. But obviously that was, you know, something like that, that's, that was a lot more punctuated than, than to me this was. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought, again, I mean, the, the reason I bring that up because uh, I thought one of the strongest things to me was the idea of memories uh, and kind of people in general and how they're able to live on and how we, we cherish people. And I thought that was really strong. And so I felt in, in that specific moment it was slightly underutilized. I like that, and you know, I like the whole family element because it allowed the story of the real strength that you need to take out whatever is actually from the love from your family and friends and whatnot, not actual physical brute strength, but the inner strength. And I think that was a good moral message to everybody, not just adults, but kids can definitely learn something from that. Absolutely, and uh, unlike most, I. I you know, um, I was wondering how they would actually end it, um, and to me, it was one of the one of the most. It, w- it was kind of a surprising ending because uh, you would think that they would kill off the Moon King, you know, because that's what a typical story has taught us that they, right. they would happen. 
But no, because it's his grandfather, uh, you know, they just basically lobotomize him. <laughs> yes. Funny, but also made me angry. I'm like, okay. They completely stripped him, stripped of his memories, and then he doesn't know who he is. And then the what I was more upset at was the villagers immediately forgot the fact that he just tried to kill them all. And they were like, oh, you're good. You're fine. It's okay. You used to be the nicest person. And I guess you're back to that person. We immediately forgive you after you literally just tried to kill all of us two minutes earlier. <laughs> they were too quick to forgive. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. But but in, in a way, I, that's kind of what I like about it is that culturally, at least, what, what it's doing is that, okay uh, – Obviously, it's it's you shouldn't necessarily forgive someone if if, if they like literally destroy your village. But they they found the good in him, and they and, and they they saw that they they could change him. They saw just like with the mother, you know, she had goodness within her all along, and uh, and so did he. He just didn't know it, right? And remember what Hanso said to the mother. Uh, he said, you know, you are my quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four words. You are my quest. <laughs> Um, so for Kubo, the quest wasn't, uh, you know, the three things. It was the grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the quest, and he succeeded. And that, to me, is really special. He was able to turn the grandfather back to good. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that, and I liked how it was a fairly clean ending, but, like, realistically, if someone's trying to... Literally destroy your this village. This is not a realistic story! I know. Someone trying to destroy your village. It was just, at the end, I'm like, okay, susp- suspend the disbelief. Okay, he's good. He's a good guy. All right, I'll give it to you another way, right? Kubo was the one who kind of initiated it, right? Uh, if memory serves me 100% correct. Kubo's the one who said, oh, grandfather, blah, 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 you're, you're good. And then the old lady and, and, and the old man sort of kind of came in and the rest of the village, right? Yes. So, if nothing else, it was the village supporting Kubo and having faith in Kubo, and, and therefore Kubo had the strength to know that he had changed his grandfather. And that is true strength. <laughs> That's the inner strength within That's Kubo right. and the villagers. Wouldn't you want people to back you up? Yeah, of course. So there you go. That's the moral of the story. And that, to me, that is poetry. That is poetic, baby. It was a very clean ending. And a happy ending with the grandfather, so I'll give them that. Absolutely. And even, you know, the souls of, of uh, Hansel and the mother, they... they yeah, and he even got the to river. Say, he saw his parents for, again, kind of happy reunited. Absolutely. So, I, you know, I, I thought it worked really well. Um, again, could have been a little bit heightened, just a little bit. Um, but overall, I thought it worked really well. Um, let's, let's talk about the magic realism. Um, in this because obviously you know uh it takes it takes ideas um and very powerful ideas and gives them a literal form to live in Mm -hmm. you know and that's what i kind of liked about this movie you know the whole idea of memories and and uh, spirits and everything like that uh it it gave a visual representation through obviously magic um but what did you think of magic realism i enjoyed it because i haven't really heard any stories of someone playing shamisen and having paper origami come to life i thought that was visually cool and the fact that it was like a family 
thing be- between the grandfather always after Kubo when he was a baby and then the mother had magic. So Kubo also had magic. It was a family-related uh, um, thing. Uh, I enjoyed that. And it was fun to see Kubo's magic actually progress as um, with the journey because the farther he went, the stronger he got. And um, I like that because it got to the point of unpredicted unpredictability and we didn't know what Kubo was capable of anymore especially when it came to the end fight I'm like something he's gonna pull something out of the air and that we haven't seen and it's gonna be cool um but I enjoyed it because visually it was just stunning and cool to watch as well and what I what I liked um you know he grew stronger but he was still also immature at times right the whole um the bird going up the monkey butt yeah uh, and then, uh, you know, it randomly decided to be a mosquito. Um, and so then that was a point where he couldn't control his powers. Uh, so, so I enjoyed that side of it because it played with his immaturity. And then once he, once he lost his parents, um, for, for the real time, uh, they, th- then he sort of, even though he retained his sense of humor and his sense of forgiveness and his sense of love, I, I, I feel like. He didn't necessarily lose his innocence, but he matured. Mm-hmm. He got more serious, especially, and I felt he was actually starting to use his magic for the quest, like building a boat out of leaves, something that was actually enhanced their journey and actually helped them along the way. Um, I like that, and the fact that he could fly, you know, also helps during trying to get the sword and whatnot. So, you know, his different things that we would learn at that moment is like, oh, he's capable of doing this too. It really helped them along the way. And you know what's also interesting too, um, you know, that obviously the power of the two strings becomes ultimately powerful. Because, you know, the memory stuff, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, it's interesting his his his, his uh, magic becomes more powerful the more he understands and loves his parents, because as he was like his journey, while it's a very it's an inner journey, it's also. Obviously, you know, he's always with his parents, um, you know. However, he doesn't know, number one, he doesn't start off knowing that they are his parents. They don't even know that they're both his parents. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so when that starts to kind of come into fruition, then he also gets more powerful. Because I think, you know, it it brings him happiness. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like the the bond, because we also see the monkey and the beetle, like, they didn't like each other, and then once they started bonding and whatnot, and then bonding with Kubo, I felt like it reflected his powers. So the stronger the relationship got, the stronger his powers got. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the two strings in terms of, you know, obviously he's got the two strings throughout, and it's play on that, but um, eventually, you know, as, as the monkey says to him early, memories are a powerful thing. And so, in the end, uh, he replaces the two strings with... Uh, Two, two strings that are memories of his father and one of his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's actually interesting because I, I feel like um, it's pulled off of an atheist belief in the sense that if you don't believe in heaven or hell, well, then you kind of think like, oh, it's sad. Once the person dies, they're gone forever. But it's like, no, they can live on through memory, and that's interesting. That's very true. And I did like that because... It also just kind of wrapped up the whole parent storyline as well because they were always, they tried to always be there for Kubo. And even when they physically weren't there, they were there in memories. And I thought that added to the inner strength. And then 
Also, he added his own string, so it was three strings. And I like that because also, in retrospect, I was like, yeah, we should have known that because, you know, strings are usually from hair. Mm. Um, and I, I liked how he combined all three to be even more powerful than his mother. When we saw her do the exact same magic, um, I, I like that because it showed just how much he growed along with the inner strength. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I, you know, in terms of, I didn't quite know why. I love the reveal when when we find out why the Moon King wants Kubo's second eye, so he doesn't have to be so. Because ironically, he's blind to the realities of the world by having two eyes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, very clever. Uh, yeah, I th- also very sad. <laughs> sad realization. Yeah, uh, very very sad realization. And uh, you know, obviously, the biggest thing that it, this movie does for you is. It, shows you okay you can either look at the world in a positive light or you can look at it negatively Mm -hmm. and that's gonna be your life yeah um uh the the sisters right um i thought they were also interesting um and the way they progressed i mean it was almost like uh okay we had three items to get and then we as we're getting these three items we have three villains uh, three bosses to conquer in a way, right? It's almost like a video game in some aspect. Um, and the sisters represent boss one, boss two, and then the Moon King, the final boss, right? Um, I, I, I thought the sisters had, you know, I, I, it was a great little dynamic because the mother came from there, and we didn't quite know what that history was. And as we learned, I, th- I found it very interesting that, um, you know, obviously because of Hanso and and, you know, she felt like she was blinded by this world. Yeah, I liked the sisters. They were creepy. And they definitely had that creep factor to it that I thought they did so well. Um, but I found it interesting how the, it was really the mother-sister fight was bigger than... It seemed like the sisters were more after the mother than after Kubo. And so it was like... Uh, Two different fights going on. And you'd think it'd be all surrounded by Kubo, but it was nice to see that it was a generational issue that's been going on in their family. You know, every every family sometimes faces that. Um, cool fight, though. That very animation, cool. The animation was awesome. Uh, what was your favorite set piece? I like the eyes. The eyes were really cool, yeah, especially right. under under the water and just how they looked. Like, ooh, that's creepy, but also I can't stop looking at it. Yeah, I, I thought just in general the crossing of the ocean was uh, very interesting, uh, starting with the boat. Um, I thought they did a wonderful job with the boat, um, and then the way they did the ocean. It, it was all very cool, so I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I was expecting the shark because, you know, Kubo's story at the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't get the shark. But also there was another moment when they were in the boat on the sea and they're, and they're talking about the mysterious things underwater. And I just found it interesting how Kubo knew about the eyes where the audience didn't. And I just like, did you add that? Was it part of the story? Because we were never introduced to that. And it's just so coinc- coincidental that he already knew about it. Mm-hmm. And yet we saw it. Like that true. seemed a little easy. Fair enough. Um, although, it was, obviously, it's a great play because he only has one eye. And <laughs> yeah. They're all looking at him. And now he's surrounded by eyes. 
Um, let's talk about the cast. Um, and I guess even before we talk about the cast specifically, uh, let's talk about the controversy because uh, this is a very whitewashed cast. Yes, it is. Um, number one. Number two, in a way, it's like if you had to pick the whitest of all white people, I think these would be it. Like, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. Uh, I mean, you, to me, you don't necessarily get more white than that. I mean, I obviously understand Hollywood and how it works, where they want to get top-billed names for actors to draw in people for and get butts in the seats. I get that. And also for talent. There are so many Asian actors out there who do very well um, in voice work for animation and whatnot. You, you, I mean, they're like, I don't want to say dumb and doesn't, but they're, they are all over the place. And it this I felt like this movie was a missed opportunity to have those Asian actors who are proficient in voice work to voice this film. Because they've built up followings of their own between anime and any animation films out there. And they could have easily brought their fans to this film. That, I mean, with animation, I think it's one of those things, like, I don't necessarily need to know the voice. You know what I mean? I don't I don't necessarily go and I don't, I, I'd be curious to know if you guys can comment on this. Like, when you go to an animated movie, are you really going because of the people who are voicing it? No. You know? Not really. Um... And yeah, I mean, it, it's just one of those things. Like, you know, to be honest, I like I had forgotten that Charlize Theron did the voice of the monkey, so it's not like I was going there for her. Uh, Matthew McConaughey's just his voice just stands out so easily that I knew it was him. However, um, you know, I I, I ask, uh, was Matthew like forget? Let, let's say this wasn't an Asian thing, um, or let's say like if you were picking the best actor to play the Beatle. Regardless of you know again cultural context, what would have he, would he have been the best choice as an actor? I don't necessarily think that he would have. I I would say no because he hasn't done animation films. That's he's more the live action, which is totally fine and Academy Award winning. But again, I think there are other actors who are just as good, if not better, than Matthew McConaughey for a voice acting role. Yeah, I agree with and and. It's just one of those things, uh, you know, especially with this, like when we talk about box office, it clearly didn't draw that many people because Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey were here. Um, I mean, I, but it seems like it hurt it. Now, on the flip side, God forbid there would have been Asian actors in this and it, it would have not done, it would have done equally, but they would have said, well, if we put Charlize Theron in there, it would have done way better. It's just, it's, it, it's, I don't it, think it's, so. Yeah. But it's a catch twenty two. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, type of thing. Um, and you know what? So in that regard, I don't know. Just take a shot, take a shot, and use somebody else. Yeah, I mean, and I think there are other actors out there who could have easily emoted as deeply as Charlie's or Matthew McConaughey with these with these characters. I mean, they are fun characters, and there are some real moments. But I think there are a lot of talented people out there who could have executed the same thing i agree um so in that regard let's let's talk about who we do have on hand um because you know i it's one of those things it's really tough for me because 
I do want to see more diversity and things like that, um, at least an effort. But at the same time, when I do look at the movie, for me, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily mind it. Like, I thought the movie worked well enough. Um, so it's one of those things that I can't fully judge, unfortunately. But I would, I would like to see an effort. Yeah, well, I mean, so. watching it was, and, and listening to the voices, I definitely could tell that was Charlie Theron's voice. And she, she's a great actress as well. So, like, I didn't have any problems with them being these characters. Because it was still fun and entertaining to watch. Yeah. And, you know, uh, obviously she got involved. But in turn, Matthew McConaughey, right, Yeah, he hadn't done uh, animation. But he was interested in doing it. He, he said he'd been wanting to do it for a while. And he wanted to do something for his kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, this falls in that realm of, you know, definitely something your kids can watch, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I mean, good for him. He just wants to be a cool dad. And Charlie's was the same way with her kids because uh, all the films that she does are usually, like, adult content. And her kids are probably too young to watch them now. But she always wanted to do something to appeal to her younger kids as well. So, uh, I mean, it was good that both of them were on board for this film. Yeah. Um, Kubo is played by Art Parkinson. Uh, he's done quite a bit despite being a young young kid. Yeah, and the funny thing is he's so Irish. You <laughs> wouldn't think it. I was listening to interviews of him uh, for research for this film, and you would never think he voiced Kubo. It's mm. actually really funny. Well, that, that makes him quite good. I mean, this guy's already been in Game of Thrones, San Andreas, uh, Dracula Untold, Dark Touch, quite a bit. Yeah, and I, I like the story of how he got involved with this um, movie. He sent in an audio clip audition via email and whatnot, and, but he was younger. I mean, Art Parkinson right now is only 15, and this movie, you know, animation takes forever. Um, it takes a long time for the process. So this was already years ago. This was about, like, three, four years ago, and he was already he was 11 when he sent in his audition. His voice, very high-pitched, still very young, and then uh, he did a, a different movie in between, and his voice dropped because of, you know, m- maturing in age and whatnot. And then when he got hired, um, his voice dropped so low that the director, Travis Knight, he's like, can you do your voice higher like you originally said sent in the audition? So with his lower voice, he had to, you know, to go, go higher. It was funny. To go up, yeah, that's obviously very interesting. Um, you know, it's one of those things that is sort of beyond his control. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, obviously, I, I I thought he did. I thought he did a really good job. Overall, really good job. Um, Ralph Fiennes plays the Moon King. Uh, to me, most notably known as either from Grand Budapest Hotel or Lord Voldemort. Mm-hmm. So if you think of it in that regard, you know, he plays one villain, and he's a villain here. And in some ways, a similar villain. Really good. I mean, and I think he has a very soft, silky voice that's very menacing at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, Rooney Mara as the sisters, uh, I didn't recognize her, and I thought she did a very good job of just being creepy. Same here. I didn't recognize that she was in this film. I like the fact that it was basically two of her, and they just kind of doubled her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it added to the creep factor. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and George Takei is in this as well, um, which 
by the way, like out of all things, like the fact that they didn't like tout that a little bit more, he is one of the most recognized. Not only is he one of the most recognizable Asian actors, he has one of the most recognizable voices in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so very interesting that they didn't uh, include that as part of the marketing. Yeah, and I mean, like it, it is unfortunate that people are calling this movie whitewashed in majority, like. From face value, you can say that. But, there, I mean, George is a part of this film, and he was one of the first people casted. So uh, it it's nice to have an actual face um, in that culture representing this film as well. Yeah. Um, so let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about Travis Knight. Uh, first time directing, but he is the president and CEO of Leica Entertainment. So mm-hmm. obviously... Uh, Knows a thing or two yeah. about this process. He got inspiration um, because when he was younger, he took a trip with his father to Japan, and it just kind of stuck with him. He always he fell in love with the culture and the stories and whatnot, and he just always wanted to do something based on Japanese culture. And you know, this film just kind of opened the door for that. Mm-hmm. It did, um, and it opened up to a warehouse, and, and right outside of Portland is no soundstage here. <laughs> yep, yep, and they worked on a, a makeshift st- soundstage, but they're actually expanding because that's how big Leica is getting with their films and whatnot, that they're expanding more buildings just so they can do... Uh, for the most part, they only work on one film at a time, but now they're getting so big that they're working on two films, two animation films, and that takes a lot, as you can tell. You know, I, I, like, and again, I'm not a hundred like I don't really fully know this world, but I don't think they need more space. They need to downsize their miniatures to be miniatures. <laughs> Mini miniatures. Because you know, as I joked about it, like the skeleton is basically two stories tall. It set the Guinness Book of World Record. Yes, it did. So you know, let's let's, let's go a little bit smaller if we can. Well, and I understand. It's good that they had the space for the practicality and try to just get it to scale, but that's how serious they are when it comes to perspective and filmmaking in general. I'm glad that they actually utilized their seemingly smaller space to achieve something so big. Yeah, I, you know, I just want... Like, I'm trying to think of all the anim- stop-motion animation movies that I've seen, and, you know, to me, the fun was always, like, they were just tiny little things mm-hmm. you know when you make it that big it seems like you're actually making a live action movie in some sense oh they were very serious and that was a very serious skeleton yes uh we have uh i believe we have a couple of pictures of the skeleton correct marissa or yes we do have a picture of the skeleton made to scale the, the cool thing about the scale it is 16 feet tall 400 pounds on a rotating base and they said they were originally they were going to make a small skeleton, but uh, it was so hard to move and actually control that they just pretty much built it on a rig mm-hmm. and had uh, um, remotes to it so they can. It was like an oversized puppet. They said, "Yeah, really cool." Nine foot arms, so it could be properly um, motor driven and puppeteered. It was really neat. And it had to be obviously on a green screen, and the the because it was so tall that the floor had to be even lower than normal. So they had to dig into the floor and they had to raise the roof. <laughs> um, let me ask this in general: in terms of the animation, uh, 
you know, part of it was as I watched it, it was it was tough to differentiate whether or not it was fully stop motion or not because you know I, they digitally smoothed out the movements. Uh, obviously, there is some green screen work, so there's CGI there. Um, visually, how did you take it in? Because you know it's something new, and I think in time, perhaps we'll get a little bit used to it. But uh, you know, I'm very much a fan of the old stop animation and 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 the the sort of any any rigidity that that offers, I didn't mind, and I thought that was part of the charm. I didn't mind it at all because I thought it was so big and so cool to look at, and also menacing at the same time. That I didn't really pay attention to the animation; I got lost in the action, which I think a film did its job when you don't even think about the animation anymore. And uh, it kind of reminded me, for some reason, like Indiana Jones and whatnot. Like they're in a cave and they're they're you know trying to fight off these things. Um, it was it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think they took a lot of inspiration. Like the whole even uh, getting the the right sword out reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it's yeah. like choose the right cup. Yeah, no, exactly. That I think that's where my mind was correlating it with. Um, in terms of okay, so. <clears throat> the the origami boat, uh, yeah, the fact that they made this ocean practically between using like the old school like um, uh, almost like uh, what do you call it? like cutouts of ocean and, and kind of doing it that way, mm-hmm. and then to do basically a rig that had uh, that wires that moved, and on top of that is basically just a blue sheet. Yep, um, and we have a couple of pictures of that so uh and by the way if, if you're listening on audio like like i said if you download the rundown we'll include these uh pictures in there but uh um you know like i said again it, it, it's just so crazy to me the fact that this is not it's necessarily like, a cgi ocean no it's like water cutouts that anyone could pretty much make and you know you just have the whole motion um action going on but i think it was also cool because the material that we're using were disintegrating really fast and so it it would stop production and whatnot so they actually built copper wires and they built it in ways where it could bend and mimic the motion of waves and on top of the wires they would just throw a blue sheet over it so it would have water like moving up and down yeah pretty neat practical yeah Definitely. Well, I don't know if practical, practical, practical. but certainly worked. Uh, the eyes themselves, uh, you know, I thought that these would be like the smallest little thing. These legitimately you could like walk in front of and it was the size of pretty much you. But it's so cool. It's even bigger than like the normal human being. Um, visually very cool. And it, it's like... Visually creepy. Yeah, that, but it's awesome. And what I liked is how they built it. It was like metal mesh, more so. Kind of like paper mache, but like out of metal. And in the center, they had a bunch of lights that emitted electricity, so it would give that glowy look for the eyes and the irises and whatnot. And then also, because of the motion, it is a fairly rounder object, that they built this encoding system where the, it actually, they could, they could, they moved, you know, like pretty much paired it up with a bowling ball, and you know how bowling balls can rotate like 360. They mimic the motion of a bowling ball. It's really neat. There you go. Smart. Who would have thunk? Hey, listen, we built, uh, what, what's his name? BB 8. I think yeah, we can. See, there's a bowling ball. Right there. Just having fun. So you can rotate it, 
And the cool thing with bowling balls, it has holes in it, so like you can already put your fingers in it and just move it in whatever direction you want. I can only imagine. Be, I, you know, someone was definitely in a bowling league and like brought their bowling ball into work. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, dude, do you need that? Here, that could totally work for this. Yeah, I mean, shoot, I bowl a lot, and I would have never thought to apply that to actual production. <laughs> well, there you go. Now, now you know you can. Um, all right, let's talk about the the music. Um, Dario Marianelli mm-hmm. did it. Uh, Academy Award nominee. Uh, done things like Pride and Prejudice, Brothers Grimm, and V for Vendetta. He's uh, also worked on the Box Troll, so he does have a connection with. Uh, like uh, entertainment as well yeah and i thought overall really good soundtrack most of it obviously is original Mm -hmm. um with the exception of the regina specter song so uh i thought i thought it fit really well i felt there was a lot of string instrumental um especially that kind of uh reflects the whole japanese culture and their musical instruments and i really liked it strings and the two strings but they they use the mix of you know different guitars that um japanese culture usually use um i can't remember the exact name but they they use assortment of different stringed musical instruments in this in the music yeah um and i i I like i thought it had a great motif and it built upon that um you know the the slow like he would always start off slow and then build and build and build and build and then you know all the origami is flying everywhere uh just really well done it's neat yeah and i liked how you know it reflected the vast musical strings in the musical notes yeah nice absolutely um and i thought the regina specter song that we listened at while my guitar gently weeps <laughs> sad title sad title but uh but fitting you understand it mm-hmm. uh you know because obviously it's the memories of two loved ones that, that are now lost yeah the strings are no longer there yep exactly um so it worked out really well see there there's go. the strings but very neat. It definitely reflects the Japanese culture and music. Yeah. Even the music, however, is a little bit whitewashed. <laughs> it can fade. The oh, average Regina inspector, Spectre. yeah. Um, so anyway, let's see. The film, in terms of promotion, like I said, I didn't see a lot of promotion based around this. No, I, f- I feel like this movie had a last-minute big push because I've heard a lot about this film in the last month, month and a half. But I knew about this film for a long time. I knew about it since last year. And I'm like, when the heck is this film coming out? And then we didn't hear about it for a year until now. So I don't know if it was just because of production and animation takes forever or like the timing was just better this year. But uh, yeah, for you, you think for a film that has big names such as Matthew and Charlize, you think it would have a bigger push. But I didn't really hear it. Yeah, which, which is quite a shame, you know. Uh, especially like it, it, between it being a family movie and just to me a, a good movie in general, I think it's a shame that um, you know inter- it, it's reflected a little bit in the box office. Um, hasn't done that well yet. Um, worldwide so far uh 
Well, you know, about 12 million uh, domestic, 13 million worldwide. So um, not doing too, too great. Yeah, it, it has a long way to go because I believe they're... $60 million. $60 million, yeah. So it's, it's got a while. Got a ways. Uh, here's the shame, though. Like, it's got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 91 audience score with an a, a cinema score. So, like, the people that are seeing it yeah. obviously like it. That's really high. Um, I Across the board, it's not just, like, critics disagreeing with audience members, audience members disagreeing with critics, like, across the board. Right. Um, and it's not like that there's a lot of animation films out right now. I think we only have Sausage Party. Which is like geared so we still have like Secret Life of Pets. Yeah, that too. Um, that's a little different, and that's a little comedy. And but this, I, this I don't feel the like there's much competition for a kids film as of right now, other than Pete's Dragon, which no. is live action. And that's also not doing too great either right now. No, to be fair, which is a shame because that's not a bad movie either. And I don't know if it's also because school's back in session, kids didn't go to it last weekend or uh which is a shame because this is actually a really solid film and kids should see it um but maybe it'll do better or maybe it'll do better um labor day weekend and everyone will go out and see it maybe school field trip to the movies yeah i'd be for that learn about japanese knowledge japanese culture Mm mm-hmm um, yeah, but it's just so, so alarming. I mean, uh, let's see a couple, a uh, couple other views. Um, uh, dark, twisted, and occasionally scary, but with humor, love, and inspiration. Uh, I think that's kind of mimics your sentiment. One of the most impressive elements of Kubo and the Two Strings besides dazzling stop motion animation, its powerful performances, and its transporting score is the amount of credit it gives its audience, particularly its younger viewers. Yeah. Oh, well, apparently that's not you because you don't want to give any credit. You want just you, you want to be spoon fed everything, don't you? Maybe. Um, It'd be nice to be spoon fed everything. Yeah. For a kids' film, you kind of you have to. No, we gotta train them. Otherwise, that that's what they're gonna grow up thinking is that they're gonna be spoon fed everything, and that's why we got all these. Well, we have millennials like that. Yes, but I mean, I can understand. So. Um, and interesting, I you know, no one's really said if there's going to be a sequel. Um, I actually could see a sequel out of this. Really? To be honest, yeah. Okay. I could. I could. It's funny because uh, Travis Knight in interviews and stuff, he's, he said that he personally never went into this expecting another sequel in the world full of just sequels nowadays. He just wanted to do a good solid film mm-hmm. that had a full arc. That's why I don't think. But um, I thought it was an interesting world and, uh, you know, I think... There's other adventures Kubo could take with his two strings if he wanted to. Um, but I doubt he ever will, especially with what we're making in terms of box office right now. Probably not. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Visually stunning. I mean, I applaud every single animator and anyone who worked on this film. They had over 600 people working on this film. So, like, it was a big number of people. Um, so I applaud all of them because... It looked beautiful. There was a, it was a fun storyline, and I think the morals of it definitely, uh, you know, can apply to adults and kids. Awesome, I agree. I, you know, um, I I see the shortcomings of this movie at times and and whatnot, but again, all very forgivable to me because of just the inspiration and the heart that that it has. 
and so it transcends all of its flaws. Um, so, you know, I, I recommend it to anyone. Take other people to go see. I think the rewatchability of this is, is through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a fun little movie. Um, and by the way, as we mentioned, go see if you if you've seen Box Trolls. We did Anatomy a movie for that. Um, let us know your guys' thoughts and opinions on this movie. We love hearing from you guys. We love interacting with you guys. Um, down the pipeline, we've got coming up. Uh, Don't breathe. Um, yeah. And uh, and then we, you know we'll start the sort of Oscar rollout of movies down the pipeline. We're getting into that season. We're about to end summer blockbusters. Yeah. And get into Oscar contention movies. Into the heavy movies like Light Between Oceans. And stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, all right. So we'll see you guys next time on another Anatomy movie. Bye. Producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff. We would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.